Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 33, which begins with Captain McAfee returning to the courthouse, and it ends with Charlie using his electrolarynx to talk to Goose. So, we mentioned yesterday that the set for the offices was torn down in 1986, not like seven years after they filmed it here. And it's not hard to imagine why they did that. Oh, yeah. This place is awful. It is a dump. <laughs> In it, every sense of the word. Yes. Although it also... I, the dumpiness felt very authentic because I can easily imagine that's pretty much how they found it. There was this, There was a picture on the wall that I noticed sometime in the next minute, maybe maybe this minute, maybe next minute, I, I don't quite remember, that just looked like it was purposefully hung off center. <laughs> like, it, it, that object very much looked like a set piece. Yeah. But other than that, everything felt, felt very like it was already there and they really didn't have to do much work to the place. Gosh, I didn't notice anything hanging on the walls because I was so distracted by the fact that there were, like, piles of garbage everywhere. I don't think there was a single window anywhere that wasn't broken in some way. Right. Um, all of the panels that probably in the past were windows were knocked out. There were holes in the ceiling. Just the entire place was so just run down. Yes. And I feel like that run down-ness tells us something about this police force that we're getting to know. Is that there's, it's kind of ragtag and it seems like it's perhaps more a group of guys just doing the best that they can. Well, but we also get the flip side of that where we see in this minute and the next that, you know, law and justice are organized in a similar way to our modern society. So it's these two opposite views that we're getting of this system. And I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure where that leads me to think. Well, you remember when Max met Goose outside the garage earlier in the movie they were talking about the people's bond and pulling things from there. So they're still supported by the general populace. And it's yes. like, and if the general populace is in decline because of societal collapse, it only follows that the police force would deteriorate in kind. That their offices and their facilities would have less funding, less ability to keep up, and they would fall into states of disrepair. Yes. Just like everything else in, in you know... Society, right? But I think that contrasts with the law and order, the 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 procedures that we see either happen or didn't happen, failed to happen. It feels a little bit polar opposite. Mm. Like the the upkeep has gone downhill because money and resources are scarce, but there's still you know a district attorney and a people's observer and they still drive around in really nice cars and they still you know have procedures and way the way things are done the steps that have to be taken that's all still in place yeah the nice thing about procedures is that they are more like once they're written down they become ideas they don't have to be physically maintained so you can still have 
a justice system with courts and laws and procedures without needing to continually patch a hole in them physically speaking well i i mean you still have to but you still have to pay people enough to care enough to enforce those procedures yeah so maybe maybe this higher up system of judges and attorneys and whatnot maybe they're sucking all the money probably maybe that explains the whole thing as corruption as the world starts to decline corruption increases yeah yeah I think that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I think we I think we solved this enigma. Yeah. So as we're panning across this just decrepit looking office, the dispatcher continues to speak, talking specifically about Captain McAfee and the convoy from the courthouse are returning to the halls of justice. And as I was looking through the character list, I noticed a name that is unidentified by pretty much all of the resources that I've seen. And it's the name of Janine Ogden. Um, I have the sneaking suspicion, and I might have mentioned this in an earlier minute. I don't, I don't know. think it's you have. I don't think I've ever heard the name Janine Ogden. But I have a sneaking suspicion that she is actually the voice of the dispatcher. Okay. And I've been unable to confirm that. Okay. So, listeners, if you are in any way capable of confirming whether or not Janine Ogden is the voice of dispatch, jump on Twitter, jump on Facebook, jump on our website... We have a comment section under each one of our blog posts on our website that host these episodes. Just if you can fi- figure it out, please let us know. Oh, we would love that. That would be a weight of mystery lifted off of my shoulders, mm-hmm. finally knowing who the heck is talking over this radio. Because it's been <laughs> a near endless source of frustration. Yes. Trying to figure out who this voice is. So this convoy going from the courthouse Back to the Halls of Justice. Mm -hmm. I was surprised to hear this over Dispatch because I feel like we have been led to believe that this, the compound of the Halls of Justice is kind of large. And we've only seen six officers plus Fifi. Yeah. And Dispatch is somewhere, probably in that building. (laughs) Probably like... Closeted in a basement room or something where she doesn't get any sunlight. And, you know, a mechanic. That's all we've seen. So I kind of assumed that the courthouse would be in the same compound. Mm. And I and I don't know any examples, but I imagine that in urban areas, the that, that in urban areas, those two facilities would be combined into one. Whenever I think of police stations and courthouses... Because I feel like MFP headquarters, the Halls of Justice, is a police station. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even in large cities, you know, like Boston, the courthouse is its own entity and the police precincts are, you know, their own entities. I don't think I've ever... Now, see, it might be different in Connecticut as far as how they organize things there. About our, you know, big county courthouse. But I can't think of any situations because even in the small town I grew up in, yeah, they were... It's kind of across the street from each other, but I mean, of course, I mean, I don't mean that they are, their entityness is mixed, that they're completely separate entities, but like you know, physically located in but the same physically place. located. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen place. that. It, I mean, especially because okay, Boston, for example, and I don't know the setup in Boston, but of course, there's you know several precincts that all report to you know the Boston police force, so they have you know a city headquarters. A larger set of offices. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what we're looking at. The Halls of Justice is 
the larger set of offices that service perhaps smaller offices out, you know, further out. Right. And I think that this system is probably in decline. And so they've probably consolidated power to this one office. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, I'm surprised that the courthouse is so far away We that there is a convoy. Well, I the, mean, the convoy turns out to be two cars, but. <laughs> I have a theory about that. Okay. I don't think it's two cars. I think it's four cars. Okay. Um, but let's. Okay. Um, so, anyways, I'm I'm just surprised that it, that that it's so far away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we do see in the next scene the cars pulling into MFP headquarters. Yes. And predominantly featured are two cars: Fifi's car and the car of the district attorney. So I don't. I think because there were sirens. Now, Fifi's car could very well have sirens. So that well, I say we is... know it does because we saw it earlier in the wreck scene. <sighs> as far as the cars are concerned, I looked up on the <laughs> the car database page of Mad Max movies. So Fifi's driving a Buick Riviera, and there is just a big old chunk of text about how you can tell that it's a Riviera, specifically between 1974 and 1976, and it all comes down to like the taillight lenses. So when they were putting together this informational page, they actually, like, paused, zoom and enhance, like, got really in there to make sure that they nailed down exactly what model this was. And this is exactly why I go to MadMaxMovies.com for my information, because they are so meticulous about these little details. Because while we are willing to go minute by minute, there are some things we are not willing to do. Exactly. Now, one thing I noted is that the car that the district attorney is driving and the car that Fifi is driving look very similar and I thought they were just the same car but no because according to the page the district attorney is driving a Lincoln Continental it's actually a bit newer it's a somewhere between a 76 and a 78 as the cars are pulling in we get to see through a nice little pan that they've actually dragged the Chevy back to MFP headquarters and there's just like a couple of kids messing with it like, one is jumping on the wrecked roof. And it makes me wonder, like, so can kids just kind of wander in and out as they please? Is that just Apparently. how things are? <laughs> Apparently. I-, I thought this was odd, too. Like, the police force, the main force patrol, they go through all the trouble of bringing the Chevy back. But then they don't protect it in any way. Mm-hmm. It's not even inside. They have a garage with plenty of room in it. They could have just put it in the garage and nobody would have bothered it. And they just dumped it outside. And they just dumped it outside. But they still went through the trouble of bringing it back. It, I don't know, it seems kind of odd. Yeah. One of the kids, specifically the one that's jumping on the roof of the wrecked Chevy, he jumps off and Bubba Zanetti is just kind of hanging out outside the fence. And the kid walks up to him and asks him what happened to the car. And Bubba is just Bubba. He has a way with words. Yeah, I was thinking about this small conversation and i realized i think the only time he ever actually answers any questions is when he's talking to toe cutter yeah and i that's definitely like their dynamic toe cutter's in charge bubba's second but when it comes to everybody else bubba's in charge yeah (laughs) even of strangers bubba's in charge what stuck out to me in this little conversation between the kid who he doesn't really have a name in the credits he's just one of the the mentioned people is the kid has a very easy-to-pick-out accent. Bubba, with how slowly he speaks, his accent sounds much more subtle. 
Yeah, I noticed that in the last time we watched the minute. And thinking about the other characters, I wonder if the main cast of characters softened their accents on purpose. Because you're right, this kid, his accent is extremely thick. But I think most other people, their accents are not at all. They're pretty mild. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe I've grown accustomed to it. I say, we've because, been spending a lot of time with this movie already. Yes. So I, I think perhaps I've grown accustomed to the accent. And this kid's accent is particularly strong. So like with every new face in the movie, I looked up this kid on IMDb. And what really jumped out at me is the interesting career path that he's taken. So this unnamed kid is played by an actor named Brendan Young, and his top four best-known projects on IMDb are things that he's directed. He do- he's done documentaries and short films and things like that. Um, in 1998, he directed uh, Three Chords in a Wardrobe. In 2010, he did Wild Planet Redux, which I think is... I think when it's a redux, it's like a shortened version of a longer documentary. Probably like a TV edit or something like that. I don't know. Uh, He did, in 2010, a documentary called You Only Live Twice, The Incredible Story of the Hughes Family. And in 2003, he did Love and Anarchy, The Wild Wild World of Jamie Leonardo. And so seeing all of these directed projects, I was like, okay, I'm going to click on this guy's biography and see what he's all about. So he was a child actor, even though he only really acted in Mad Max, which means that he probably did a bunch of stage productions and whatnot, yeah. and then got cast in a movie, and then after that decided, you know what, maybe I'll just go to film school. And so he went to the Australian Film, Television, and Radio School, majored in cinematography and film direction, and eventually graduated with his graduation film being 1989's Wild Planet which actually went on to win a number of local and international awards, and it launched him into a diverse filmmaking career, which saw him working as a cinematographer, editor, um, on multiple award-winning films. He did music videos, television commercials, and then evolved into a successful career as a director working in film, television, and, of course, like I said, commercials. His film in 1998, Three Chords and a Wardrobe, was voted Best Australian Short Film at the Sydney Film Festival, and he also won an AFI, which is Australian Film Institute Award, for Best Documentary Under an Hour at the 2010 AFI Awards for You Only Live Twice, The Incredible True Story of the Hughes Family. So you could almost say that his experience on the film set of Mad Max as a child actor probably said, you know what, I like being in this environment. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to continue going to school for this. And it eventually produced what is an award-winning director, which is pretty cool. Nice. All from, you know... Two lines. Hey, mister, what happened to this car? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I kind of got sucked into a rabbit hole when I was looking at this scene because Bubba's response, perhaps it's a result of an anxiety. It was like, okay, well... Let's let's poke and prod into the idea of anxiety and destructive behaviors. And I say I got sucked into a rabbit hole because when you're dealing with anxiety, a lot of the times it's self-destructive tendencies, which 
mostly focuses on personal items, self-harm, relationship damage and whatnot. It's not like you run out and destroy other people's cars. Right. So maybe he was suggesting that Lair destroyed his own car. Yeah. Maybe that was more of the, you know, what happened to the car? It looks like it was chewed up and spat out. Well, maybe it's the result of someone having a nervous breakdown and destroying their own car. And it's like, well, I guess, I guess that could be the case, but it's like, uh, it's just Bubba being Bubba. Yeah. Him and his just odd Not answering questions. Being overdramatic every chance he gets. But we cut from the kid and Bubba at the fence further into the courtyard where Max, Roop, and Fifi have gotten out of the car. And Roop is walking in such a way that he's just going to go inside and, like, hang out. <laughs> and Fifi stops him. It's like, Roop, no, stay with the cars. <laughs> Roop just seems so disappointed. I personally think, and I let myself get shot down a few minutes ago, but I'm going to go back to it. I think there were four cars in the convoy. Yep. I think they had two Interceptor escorts. And I think the first one, which I think was Roop, was the first one, but I really have no real evidence of that, was the one who had his sirens going. Yeah. Which really doesn't matter, but, uh, you know, that's not what we're here for. But that... Also brings up the question is, why did they have their sirens going? Why were they being escorted by perhaps two interceptors? What was the point of that? So the interceptors out front having their sirens on makes sense because then it would be heard because by the time we see Fifi and the district attorney driving into the complex, we've already heard the sirens from the inside shot. Yes. And, and we, we can see, see the interceptors turned around. Yeah, we can see at least one interceptor is turned around. So we had to get there in enough time, far enough ahead, to back in. So to, to turn around. What probably and get happened is Max and Roop were driving one or two interceptors, because there are two interceptors once we see them all getting out of the cars. Yes. They were probably in front of those two cars, pulled ahead far enough so that they could go into the courtyard turn around back in like you do with police vehicles with enough time that by the time Fifi and the district attorney were pulling into the complex that you could already see in the distance around the corner one of the cars and somebody standing next to the car which I think was Roop yeah it's very very fuzzy but it does look like a larger person as opposed to a smaller person yeah comparing Max and Roop so Roop waited around for Fifi and the district attorney to arrive before he went inside, which I guess well you when, could give him a little credit for waiting and not just going well, inside abandoning. Mr. Video Game over here, when you're on an escort mission, you are forced to wait for your people. Yeah. You can't get too far away, then you fail the mission. So he was charged with escorting this convoy, and he was doing his job. Mm-hmm. He was waiting for them. Um, still don't know why they had their sirens on. Because they weren't escorting anyone in those cars except right. for the district attorney. And it's like, if it, you're just escorting the district attorney, he's not. what's the point of having your sirens on? Right. Unless, let's go back real quick to our idea of the level of corruption. Uh-huh. Unless the district attorney in his corruption has elevated himself to the point where he gets a police escort. Yeah. Because in our day and age... A district attorney would not get a police escort. Not really. Um, especially not one with their sirens on. I'm trying to think who would warrant, what official would warrant 
an escort with sirens going. Probably like a like a senator, probably. Yeah, I think a senator. I mean, I know the president, his his escorts have sirens going all the time. Yeah. Um, and perhaps even senators. Maybe governors. Yeah. But nowhere near I mean this is a district attorney. Yeah. He's a lawyer. He doesn't get an escort. No. <laughs> um He's just a big fancy lawyer. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Okay. So, so where were we? So they're all getting out of their cars. Roop doesn't get to go inside with everybody else. Yep, and we they see... wait. The People's Observer walks around the other side of the car and opens the door for the district attorney. That also lends itself to thinking that corruption has elevated his stature. Yeah. We don't actually get to see the district attorney enter. or We don't actually get to see the district attorney until tomorrow. But <laughs> we do get a different sort of reveal. We cut in back inside the office and we see Charlie using his electrolarynx for the first time. Yeah, I have to say I was really surprised by this because so prior to analyzing minute by minute, I had seen the movie twice. Once a long time ago where I found it a little bit boring and then once in preparation for, hey, do we want to analyze this movie minute by minute? Neither time do I remember him needing a what was the electrolarynx yeah it's an electrolarynx this came as a complete surprise to me (laughs) i did not remember this bit at all and i'm surprised because that's a really interesting thing Mm. that he's using this and you know creates a very unique voice for him it pays off the minute earlier where he talks about how he takes a sauce pot in the in the throat yeah (laughs) <laughs> like he did some significant damage. Yeah, he caught his he caught his neck on that broken windshield, and it you know I sliced some stuff up. Yeah, so yeah. I was another rabbit hole watching this, and I thought you know what electrolarynxes are pretty interesting. I think I'll look one up. So I jumped on Wikipedia and I read an article about it there, and I'm like, well, Wikipedia is all well and good. And I went down to the sources section that every Wikipedia page has, and the sources section is like a treasure trove of like legitimate sources stuff right. that people can't just edit and so i went or i found myself on the website for the eastern virginia medical school department of otolaryng otolaryngology otolaryngology i do not promise that that's correct that's just my best guess based on my medical terminology experience which is minor but it's there so they have a blurb all about these interesting little pieces of technology. An electrolarynx is a mechanical device that is used to pr- help produce speech in individuals who have had a laryngectomy for, or for some other reason cannot use their larynx. The electrolarynx is a handheld device about the size of a small electric shaver that has a vibrating plastic diaphragm. In order to speak, the end of the electrolarynx is placed against the neck and a small button is pushed. This causes the diaphragm to vibrate and produces a vibration in the throat that duplicates the vibration of the vocal cords. The speaker then articulates with the tongue, palate, throat, and lips as usual. Some people require practice in placing the electrolarynx in just the right spot on the neck in order to produce good speech. Practice is also needed in articulation. The speech from an electrolarynx has a mechanical sound, but can be very clear and easily understood. The speech, when done properly, is also easily understandable over a telephone. So, considering that the Code 3 at the time of the nighttime crash was a few days ago, 
and then there's an indiscriminate amount of time between that nighttime crash and Goose and Max finding the wrecked Chevy, and then an indeterminate amount of time between them finding the Chevy, going through all the court proceedings, and getting to this point. It's believable that Charlie has had enough time to go to the hospital, get treated, get his electrolarynx, and like start practicing with it. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's been several weeks. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. Um, he does seem like he's still getting used to it. Like, it, it doesn't seem like he's totally adept with it just yet. It still looks like he's... Working hard. Working hard at it. Yeah, I, I'm curious about the actor and his experience with it. And I'm kind of surprised that it never came up in the behind the scenes. Did you happen to look up anything about I didn't. that? Can you use an electrolarynx if you still have a larynx? Because I feel like I don't have... I can't control... I, I can't make vibrations down there without actually making the noises come out of my mouth. I don't think. It might be. I, yeah, I'm like trying to and I and I, I can't. So I wonder if this is ADR. It might be. I don't know if it would work just using it for a regular speaking person. Like, can you press an electrolarynx to your throat and just make the movements with your mouth and tongue and whatnot? And have it still work. Like that electrolarynx, is it just replacing... But the, the larynx... Larynx? It works by passing air over... I don't know. I I question whether someone with a larynx can use an electrolarynx. It definitely would make sense if they ADR'd it after yeah. the fact. Because honestly, he is so over-articulating. What, what, what is cheaper? Acquiring an electrolarynx and training him how to use it or three, two or three lines of ADR. Yeah, I it's willing. I'm willing to bet that for the sake of this movie, the electrolarynx that he's using is actually just a non-functioning prop. Yeah, and they just put it in after the fact. Yeah, it would be so much easier from a filmmaking standpoint. I think so. Yeah, that it really does sound simpler just to ADR the lines. Yeah. So, Charlie is paying very close attention to what's going on outside. He leans out his little cubicle there. He says he, that they think he thinks they're out there. And Goose is very laid back about the situation. He's talking about you know how Charlie can take his time. They've got plenty of it. And I think Goose is sitting there thinking that the process that we're going to talk about tomorrow of prepping him to move is something that they don't have to jump on right here and now. Like when yes. he says we've got plenty of time, I okay. think he's not in a rush to start prepping Johnny to move over to the prison. Because Goose is fully convinced that that's exactly what's going to happen. Yes. And in a very arrogant way. Yeah. He's wearing his sunglasses. Indoors. Indoors. <laughs> and that's just kind of an arrogant thing to do. Yeah. Um, he, he's definitely presenting this attitude that he is so sure of what's gonna happen yeah that he has he is in no rush he has no concerns very laid back yeah and he's just sitting there flipping coins yep which okay one of the flip one of the flips he does with the coins like gets nowhere near the helmet like it's not even it's not it doesn't have enough force to reach the helmet it's not yeah. that his aim is off it doesn't have enough force to reach the helmet it's kind of amusing and he doesn't care yeah yeah he didn't care. So it, he has a he has a bigger victory looming than getting a coin and a helmet. Yeah. What's nice about this shot of 
Goose turning around to talk to Charlie is that we can see Johnny and he's got like neck he's got a neck collar attached to like chains that drape down I think to like his wrists and probably his ankles and too. And his feet too, yeah. Like he's full on he's not he's not strapped to a board Hannibal Lecter style, but he's uh, full on shackled. Yes. And just sitting there and he's wearing like this ratty looking suit. Which he wasn't wearing when they arrested him, so they must have put him in that yeah. suit for a court appearance. For a court appearance, and then Goose and Charlie probably brought him back to MFP while the courts deliberated or while some sort of proceedings took place. Yeah, I would have been very interested in seeing Johnny's journey in custody up to this point. I think it would have clued us into the justice system and how it functions because there's a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense to me that I think we'll get into more in the next minute Mm. as the results of the day at court are revealed. Yeah. I think, I think it was wise of them to skip a court scene as interesting as it would have been. I think it was probably a good idea to skip the court scene because having the next couple of minutes play out at MFP headquarters, it's a more recognizable environment for us to see our characters in. You know what I mean? Like, they're on home base here, and the situation is unfolding in their own home, so to speak. Yeah. As opposed to somewhere It's interesting that you say that, because I don't like this scene coming up. Yeah. I think it's... It should never have happened. Yeah. It... it Very poor management on Fifi's part. I blame the, the next... Two minutes, however long this whole thing takes. Longer, maybe three or four minutes. I blame it all on Fifi. Yeah. I, his poor management style is, this never should have happened. Yeah, he loses points in my book over the, over the next several minutes. Yes. But there's plenty of time to talk about that. Yep. In the days to come. So, in the meantime, our website is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute number 33. We will see you tomorrow. Motorbikes and leather men Take me to the edge of the dream